0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Just after
1: four o'clock and thanks to Chris for that program, even though he only had half a voice. Today, report on the rallies in Melbourne on Sunday... I'll be speaking with Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Fascism and Racism. The work of AFIDA, the Trade Union Overseas Aid Organisation in Lebanon and Palestine, with the coordinator of that area, Jeremy Smith. Reaction to news that Trump is ramping up the war in Afghanistan. I'll be speaking with Kathy Kelly from the Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And Tristan Epstein will be talking about life in the Basque Country of Spain. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and it's another one of those weeks.
0: A week, Jane, listener, when, well, we always conclude with good afternoon, but if it were morning, good morning, sadly the morning would be spelt as in the verb to mourn. And I'm sure no matter how this segment tries, nothing will cheer us up this afternoon as we mourn the sad demise of the head of the Inquisition, smash the unions, jackboots, Commission big supremo Nigel Hadge kiss the bosses, who sadly this week was forced to kiss the bosses goodbye. A man who so believed in the need for laws to smash evil unions and toss lazy, avaricious workers into the dungeon, he made his own laws, laws to uphold the dear baby Jesus given truths behind the Inquisition, the theology of the greatest little economic order of them all, allowing besieged caring employers the chance to charge evil union officials and workers under the non-laws he created. And he had a perfect reason for doing what he did. He knew the laws he made up should have been the law. And would have been if it wasn't for the goody-goody black armband lot who think, for instance, those diabolical influences, union officials should be allowed to talk to union members. For goodness sake, poor Nigel knows the only good worker is a worker who exercises her or his right not to join a union. And the way to stop evil is to make it illegal to join a union. But now, alas, poor Nigel, whose credentials as a former a sorry, upholder of capitalist law and capitalist order, made in the perfect inquisitor to creak the rack and fill the dungeons in the name of capitalist law and capitalist order. So I know, listener, like me, you, we feel so for poor Nigel. Interesting the way some people hide their mourning, their sense of despair, their sense of loss. All those poor, distressed building workers forming a guard of honour for poor Nigel, waving union flags... Illegal union flags overlooked by Scabby the Rat. Illegal Scabby the Rat blowing in the breeze and cheering loudly. Guess it helped them handle their grief. Get over the tragedy. To make matters worse, the evil he was burning at the stake is now suing him for having it charged with laws that were not laws, showing how evil unions have no respect for the law. And to compound their evil, they have been critical of a Minister of State, showing their total disregard for the law of any sort, no less a Minister than the Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Michaelia Kosh, the workers herself. A former partner with great caring business class law firm Free Kill the workers just because Michaelia knew for 12 months that Nigel was persecuting workers under Nigel's law but poor Michaelia was just following her principles hating workers and destroying evil unions good honour, just doing what she needs to do, just doing her job which is why Lord Rupert of Wapping managed to cover this whole saga in six pars, buried at the bottom of an inside page, squeezed into invisibility beneath a double page spread continued from P1 sensation, sensation on alleged corruption in the pejorative Dan socialist state government. And we can be sure if a pejorative Dan senior bureaucrat had been advising, say, evil unions to take action on a made-up non-law, and a pejorative Dan minister had been aware of the advice and condoned it for 12 months, Lord Rupert would consider it too warranted, no more than six paths buried back in the book. No P1 pejorative Dan sensation sensation double page spreads inside in that case. Although on that alleged corruption bit, we must be equally distraught that that champion of the working class who has devoted so many years fighting for socialism by putting his bum on the plush seats, Kim il is caught up in the allegations. But moving on, we must move on, listener, despite our grief over poor Nigel. Good to see the government practicing what it preaches about market forces and competition and all that by attacking a corporate fossil for practicing what the government preaches and ignoring the government's invocations not to practice what the government preaches. A.G. Hill for Consumers maintains its decisions will be based on market forces, its bottom line and its shareholders interests. Big Supremo Malcolm Tunna was very angry. That is outrageous. My government is concerned about the community's interests. Uh, but you always say the community's interest is served by market forces, the bottom line, and shareholders' interest. Look, obviously that is the case, but that truth must be balanced against the fourth great belief, uh, which is my political interest, political survival. Malcolm and his Deputy Big Supremo Barnacle, fresh from supporting a clean energy target as long as it does not involve clean energy, expressed their concern for all of us by declaring they were prepared to provide a few trillion in corporate welfare to keep an ageing fossil plant open. Uh, Yes, Barnacle, why do you oppose clean energy in a clean energy target? Because it costs too much in government handouts. It must stand on its own feet. On that... Mr. Consistency himself, U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, last week ruled that all these young people who have lived in the U.S. of almost since birth must be deported. Good. Very good. And this week was negotiating on ways to ensure they must not be deported. Good. Very good. Sorry, listener, but I can't update you on what his position is this afternoon. Of course, the previous week, he stood in front of a coal-fired power station in Dakota and eulogized the fossil industry, declared the North Dakota pipeline open for business. Good, good. And said his thoughts and prayers were with the hurricane victims. Consistency. And this week, his Secretary for Fossils, Scott Pooidit, put in charge of the Environment Protection Body he always argued should be disbanded, and continually sued for getting in his way, said of those insensitive souls who suggested the extreme weather events should raise discussions around climate change, if there is such a thing, now is not the time that is insensitive. Unfortunately, Scott didn't tell us when it would be the time, when it would be sensitive, but I suspect it's a bit like workers asking for a little pay rise. The time is never right. Now is always not the time. As this furor continued over the Nobel Peace Laureate, wrong sin won't see, we have to concede there's been some prime champions of peace in our time win the prize. For instance, we can be sure the non-people of the West Bank and Gaza made non-people through the terrorism of former Zion big supremo Bagan, the well-named Stern Gang, or the wedding parties of Afghanistan and Pakistan, terrorized by the buzz of drones sent on their lethal by former USO Big Supremo Barack for change, 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 must appreciate the peace those two Nobel Peace recipients have showered upon them, to name just a couple of notable people of peace. Then again, Barack's successor wants to bring peace to our part of the world through a bit of fire and fury, fire and fury like the world has never known. Good, very good. Wipe a country off the face of the earth before the fossils he supports do it to the whole earth anyway. And obviously he's found a way to make sure the nuclear clouds stop when they hit what used to be the border. Donald is also joining all the other peace lovers at the UN, of the US, at the UN of the world this week, where he kicked off his contribution by informing the UN of it was too bureaucratic. Uh, which bureaucrats are you talking about, Donald? All the countries which are not the U.S. Off. Uh, but they're countries. Very bad. Terrible. And evil China and evil Russia must lose their right, their right of that, that thing that, that allows you to say no. A veto. That's it. And Britain might elect that Corbyn coming and, and France rejected that wonderful Marine Le Pen, the pause, so they should lose it too. Dangerous. Very dangerous. Uh, leaving the U.S. of. So it would. What do you know? And then we'd have world peace. Good, very good. Fire and fury like the world has never known. Fantastic. But that it were a fantasy. This morning's Spencer Street No Longer Spencer Street Fairfax claims the lobster with a mobster state caring business class supremo and would-be big supremo Matthew Pay Guy also charged the developer or ten grand for an audience. And I'm sure you'd agree, listener, we can't imagine why people who could afford it wouldn't pay ten grand not to have to meet him. One of our very favourite politicians, Erica Betts on the Bosses, is upset that this civilisation-destroying marriage equality business, and doesn't Eric know that's a misnomer, equality business, will destroy religious freedom. People must be free to follow their beliefs in a free democratic society, uh, so same-sex couples must be free to marry then. Let me uh, rephrase that. Good Christian followers of the dear baby Jesus must be free to follow their beliefs in a free democratic society. And on the point that such freedoms will be addressed following the 120 million survey, Eric said he didn't trust politicians. Great self-awareness, Eric. Insight. After all, it was a politician who took away my highly paid ministerial position. Finally, sorry, but I know nothing can overcome our grief at the demise of poor Nigel, other than to comment as some sort of solace that it couldn't happen to a nicer, could it? Good afternoon.
1: Good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy, and on again tomorrow, 9 o'clock, City Limits. A powerful stage show, UMCA presents stories from the African diaspora in Australia. Experiences of belonging, representation and emancipation. Told through music, dance, theatre and projection. Part of the Melbourne Fringe Festival. On show from the 22nd to the 23rd of September. Presented by CoHealth Arts Generator. Exclusive to Arts Centre Melbourne. Book tickets at artscentremelbourne.com.au A 3CR supporter. Next, a report back on the two rallies that were held At Parliament House on Sunday, and I'm speaking with Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Debbie, just begin with the issue of calling the two groups, the far right and the far left. How do you respond to being called the far left?
2: There are two things that come to mind. First of all, that labeling of far right, far left, extreme right, extreme left is, is there to demonize those of us who are actually the broad community who are organizing against the far right. So that demonizing is a way to keep people away, an effort to keep the rest of the community away it's also a way to paint the police role as being something neutral to so-called keep the, the peace and keep the streets safe that's one thing the other response to that is that as I said we we are the community so those of us who come together and unite in these counter actions against the far right and the neo-Nazis were from the whole breadth of the community. So we were unionists, we're LGBTIQ people, we're First Nations, we're immigrants, and so on. So that labeling that the mainstream media continues to do is just not the reality, but it's deliberately there to not describe things as they really are
1: and there were a number of new faces there on sunday
2: um yes and this is something that campaign against racism and fascism we've been um organizing for the past two and a half years consistently and throughout those two and a half years we have broadened and you can see it in the the breadth of people from our communities who do come together last Sunday was a very good example. It was just so diverse, and there were organizations as well as individuals who were from the Jewish community, the First Nations, the African community, Muslim, LGBTIQ, and so on.
1: The second issue I'd like to touch on is why do you believe so few of the far right attended that demo on Sunday?
2: Well, that's a a very important point because what the far right, and we're talking about a particular person, Avi Yemeni, who is a far right racist and he's also... An ex-soldier in the Israeli military.
1: That doesn't mean much, though, does it? Because just about everyone's a soldier in the Israeli military.
2: Yes. Well, he is an absolutely far-right soldier. He brings his racism into actively into Melbourne. Um, He has tried to bring one nation into the jewish community but of course the jewish community rejected that he tries to stir up hysteria around the african community putting people ordinary people at risk and threatening to raid their homes in the middle of the night i mean it's extreme hysteria but the jewish community also rejects that so avi yemeni he's a far-right racist with very close ties with neo-nazis so his effort last sunday was to build on that racist hysteria to bring people out around that, around a law and order campaign to increase already extensive police racial profiling powers. But as you said, it didn't work because he failed in mobilizing the community He failed miserably, so that there were about 50 people there at his rally, and they were the hardcore of the far-right and neo-Nazis. So, Neil Erickson, for example, who was one of the fascists who was convicted in the magistrate's court a couple of weeks ago, he was there co-hosting this rally and then of course you had the true blue crew you had the soldiers of odin and other fascist groups who were there but they were strictly the hardcore so they failed to recruit as as they had hoped they would
1: i referred in the introduction the number of police that were there and i'm sure many of them were enjoying over time on sundays how would you assess their strategy on sunday
2: It seems that their strategy this particular time was to hold back on the force. You can never predict these things because many of us may remember that um, the last counteraction against neo-Nazis in June, the police came out in total force to protect the fascists against the anti-fascists who far outnumbered the small group of fascists, But, but on Sunday, This did not happen. And we also saw that just before the Sunday rally, the anti-mask laws that had been passed were then rushed through to be enforced for the first time on Sunday. So the potential there was for the police to use all their force yet again, but their strategy was clearly to hold back and not do that. That doesn't mean, of course, that next time it would be the same way. It's possible one can only guess that they were holding back because it would not be a very good look this particular time, but that was Sunday.
1: Also the reporting in the media, in the corporate media, still playing violence if they could find it but it was very difficult for them to find it wasn't it and what do you think about the what you saw of the, the coverage of this Sunday event
2: you could see how they pounce on anything that moves basically and as you said because our counteractions are always very disciplined were united and diverse There just is no violence, and because there just was none whatsoever on Sunday, they seized upon a person who wanted to cover his face, which, again, is fair enough, but, of course, they seized upon this because the the police had had told him to remove his face covering, and they arrested him. That was the one and only thing that the mainstream media could jump on, and they did. And that really just shows how single-minded they are and how desperate they are to be able to show or depict something, not show something as violent, but depict it as violent, even if it isn't.
1: Do you believe it might be a while before the far-right try another visit to the centre of Melbourne?
2: Uh, Listen, anything is possible. They're certainly going to keep trying. Who knows what the timing may be? It could be sooner, it could be later. But again, I think that's a very important question that you're asking because we just have to be prepared at any time to counter-organize again.
1: Is Victoria the center of the far right or are these demonstrations actually happening in other capital cities?
2: You don't get news of this happening elsewhere. I think though that the reason the focus is here in Victoria, it's because there's been such a strong anti-fascist organizing that been consistent ever since Reclaim Australia appeared for the first time two and a half years ago. So it's because here in Victoria, you know, our communities have been well organized every single time that this is where the, basically the, the, the nucleus of that battle is playing out. Of course, it doesn't mean that it won't be playing out elsewhere because it certainly will when we consider why is this happening in the first place. And of course, all of this is happening because the economy is collapsing. People are hurting. There's a far right and neo-Nazi movement globally. And they are trying to, you know, build a dangerous movement out of that hurt. I'm just
1: wondering whether they're getting involved in the the marriage survey have you heard anything about that
2: i think all that we know is the fact that neo-nazis have certainly jumped on to the the marriage equality survey and again when you think about it it's no surprise whatsoever because it shows the broad agenda of the far right and um the neo-nazi groups that they're racist of course but they are also holding on to what they call these traditional australian values which is to keep women in the home and to keep lgbtiq people in the closet so that with this particular survey they have pounced on it you see their posters up around you know on street poles on university campuses, and so on. Again, yes, they, they have been quite active in this.
1: And that makes it all the more important that groups like yours remain active.
2: Yes, that's absolutely right. Remain active and um, just keep broadening. And this is why it's so important, we believe, to have so many uh, diverse quarters from our you know huge working class community to come in on this and there were LGBTIQ people there on Sunday as an earlier actions as much as other communities there yes it is very important
1: if you'd like to give your details of where to find you
2: this is the time to get involved in campaign against racism and fascism if, if you haven't already and you can do a couple of things. You can text to the following number, 0422 726 843 and text the word subscribe. That means that you will be getting texts to alert you to any meetings or actions that um, CARF is organizing. Something else that... Um, Everyone is absolutely welcome to come to is CARF Meetings. Campaign Against Racism and Fascism meets every second and fourth Tuesday of the month at six PM at Trades Hall. So the next one will be um Tuesday the twenty sixth, a week from today. And of course, if um you haven't gotten onto CARF's Facebook, do that too and just stay in touch and absolutely get involved. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you very much.
1: And that was Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. If you'd like that text number again, it's 0422 726 843. And the message is subscribe, S-U-B, S-C-R-I-B-E. And you're listening to 3CR, 26 minutes past 5.00. Four o'clock. Wishing that I away. Four o'clock. Hello? Listen, I had
3: a great idea. Male chauvinist pig versus hairy-legged feminist. You're still a feminist, right? I'm a tennis player who happens to be
0: a woman. The battle you've all been waiting to see. The battle of the sexes.
4: You want to see it, right? Then get along and support 3CR at
5: the Palace Withgast Cinemas, 89 High Street, North Kent, on Thursday, October 5th, from 6.30 p.m., for a screening of Battle of the Sexes.
3: You're offering the men's winner eight times what you're offering the women's winner.
5: The men are simply more exciting to watch. It's just biology.
1: <laughs> the story of the infamous tennis match between Billie Jean King and
5: Bobby Riggs.
4: Tickets are $25 and $20 concession. You can purchase online
5: at 3cr.org.au, direct from the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or by phoning 9419 8377 during business hours.
2: All funds raised go to keeping 3CR on air. Battle of the Sexes screening, Thursday, October the 5th from 6.30pm.
3: have the nerve? Call Barbie. Tom's on.
1: Women and children are by far the most severely affected by war and the majority who are forced from their homes into refugee camps. Palestinians and Syrians, many of whom are Palestinians, made refuge for the second time sheltering crowded refugee camps in South Beirut, Lebanon, which will be one of the focus of this following interview. I'm speaking with Jeremy Smith, the Equality, Impact and M&E Manager for the Middle East with AFIDA, the trade union overseas aid organisation. Jeremy lives in Ramallah, Palestine, and is heading back in a couple of days after spending six weeks in Australia. Jeremy visits the projects in Lebanon several times a year. I asked Jeremy first about the title for his job with a feeder, a very wide-ranging job.
5: I work for Union at a a feeder based in the Middle East and essentially coordinate everything to do with monitoring and evaluation and quality management and reporting and ensuring that The work that we're doing is actually having an impact on the ground and where we're not having an impact, we're noting that and and seeing why and fixing those mistakes and improving our work and ensuring essentially that projects we're implementing in in partnership with our Palestinian partners are are having the best uh, outcome that they have. Um, The money that we have donated is reaching as far as it can in the best places that it can.
1: Apart from the Palestinian refugee camps in Beirut, what other ones are there?
5: We have a very large project in uh, the Occupied Palestinian Territory in the West Bank and Gaza Strip where we're working with small-scale rural communities to try and increase both the quality and quantity of farming production uh, as a means to increase the income of small-scale farmers. Uh, Farmers in in Palestine face huge barriers. So it's a captive economy in decline where there's lots of cheap imports coming in from Israel. There's water uh, issues access to to basic income, sources like bank loans if you want to increase your land or or access to inputs. Uh, So we're working at many levels to try and increase production, create better connections to markets, and at the end of the day, increase incomes for Palestinian farmers. And through that as well, to also try and increase social and economic empowerment of women who are working informally in the agricultural sector and working informally on farms but is not having that recognized and often not having any avenue to have that remuneration for their work. So we're also in tandem working on several campaigns with some of our partner organizations to increase women's wages in the agricultural sector and at the same time trying to change some of the laws and the application of laws in Palestine to increase women's access to inheritance rights. And often in farming communities when parents pass away, the land resources go purely to the brothers to try and keep the small-scale land together and, and women in the, in the household don't actually access their inheritance rights. So we're working through the courts and through the Palestinian legal systems to try and increase access to economic inputs to, to create an income and create sources of income for women living in Palestine. A lot of different things in, in Palestine.
1: I'd imagine it would be doubly difficult in Gaza.
5: Absolutely. In Gaza, you have the ongoing blockade. That's uh, the 11th year. Most agricultural land in Gaza is along the border areas, and so a lot of that cannot be used and cannot be accessed by farmers. So the remaining land has to be used incredibly effectively. Uh, At the same time, water in Gaza is salinated and polluted. There's no effective treatment of sewage in Gaza um, since the sewage plants were destroyed in the, in the previous wars and so there's a lot of seepage of sewage into the water sources which means that you cannot use um, water for most purposes at the same time, farmers are forced to use either salty water to water their crops, which is of course not suitable, or pay large amounts of money to buy water which is imported in from Israel which Israel actually makes a lot of money off most of the The water in Gaza is not accessible because the underground aquifer is recharged from an area outside of Gaza, in in what's called the Hebron Hills, to the east of the Gaza Strip. And most of that water is extracted before it gets into the Gaza aquifer. So farmers are are left uh, having to buy fresh water from the companies where Israel imports it through, which of course is a huge cost on the farmers and, and reduces their profit potential. And then on top of that is just the the trauma of living in isolation from the rest of the world, um, not having access to larger markets to sell your produce to, the continual stress of raising a family in a, in a blockade where you know, every child under 11 has lived their entire life under siege, has lived through three wars, and especially most, you know, the most recent one in 2014, which had such a huge humanitarian impact over 2,100 people killed in the 51-day war. And so all these things together create huge pressure on farmers and and, and mean that because of the blockade they can't actually get a fair price for their products and then the economics of the strip is also in continual decline disposable incomes are incredibly low unemployment is incredibly high in Palestine it's the highest in the world young women especially have an unemployment rate of over 60 percent and so to sell your produce at a price where you get a fair return on your labor is next to impossible and you cannot access markets outside, even in the West Bank or or Jordan or Egypt, where you would get a better price because of the Israeli blockade. So the economic situation is just making people poorer and poorer and the lack of water infrastructure. And then in the last couple of months, there's been a reduction in electricity, uh, where the electricity supplied into Gaza Strip from Israel has been reduced down to two hours a day. Gaza doesn't have the capacity to create its own electricity because the electricity plants uh, were destroyed in the 2014 war. Most people only have access to two hours of electricity a day, which is on a rotating schedule, and you need, you need electricity for farming and everything.
1: The main topic of this interview is the, what a feeder is helping Syrian refugee children who are victims of the war there, but we have to emphasize first the decades-long solidarity and support that a feeder has given to the Palestinian refugees forced out of their country back in 1947-48.
5: Yeah, that's right. As a result of the 1948 war, over 700,000 Palestinians became displaced in neighboring countries. About 100,000 fled in the north up into Lebanon, and that has grown and become the longest unresolved refugee crisis in the world. It's still in a crisis state. Right now there are more than 500,000 Palestinian refugees living in Lebanon across 12 refugee camps. And these camps are overcrowded, incredibly poor. There's a real lack of basic infrastructure required. I'm talking sewerage, I'm talking electricity, I'm talking water. And these camps are rented areas of land that the UN rented from Lebanon in 1948 on 99-year leases. And most of them are about a kilometre square each, and they haven't increased in size as the population of the refugees has increased over the last 70 years. So what's happened is over time these camps have moved from kind of basic tented areas to ghettos and buildings grow up on top of each other as families expand and and Palestinian families are quite large, there's a large birth rate, and there's no movement outwards, there's just movement up. But because of the lack of real infrastructure, including access to sufficient concrete, what's happened is these camps have become incredibly dense ghettos, essentially. In the agreement with the Lebanese government, it was stipulated that these camps couldn't become permanent places of residence that they were just temporary places until uh, the refugees had the right to return home. Uh, And over time, that's remained and that's been translated into things like, you know, no government sewage network will be installed in the area because that would make it a permanent place of of residence. It's translated into no official Lebanese uh, electricity infrastructure will be put into the camp what's happened with those services is a lot of it has grown up in ad hoc ways and provided by the united nations in a piecemeal way and are incredibly inadequate these camps are just small dense uh, hives of disadvantage and and poverty and on top of that palestinians living in lebanon uh, are denied working rights to over 32 professions in lebanon meaning that there's just no economic opportunities for advancement for Palestinians. So, in, in, in medicine, for example, or teaching, or in uh, farming, Palestinian refugees are not allowed to work in these areas. In the camps, you are forced to find either informal work and in construction, where there's a lot of exploitation, uh, there's underemployment, or to work within the kind of camp communities themselves and the, the schools and the basic medical facilities set up in the camps. I mean, in these contexts, FIDA has been working with our partner organizations since uh, the late 80s, early 90s. We work with an organization called the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organization, who are a fantastic organization working from a feminist approach to create structures inside several refugee camps to provide the immediate humanitarian needs being faced by Palestinian refugees, but also to build the human capacity in the camps because that's your only option when you don't have access to land rights, to job rights, to return home. You build the human capital of where you are now.
1: Is there any way out for the people there? Do they manage to get to other countries maybe for higher education?
5: Well education is that one kind of avenue, that one hopeful avenue that people have to get out of this situation. But it's incredibly, incredibly difficult because Palestinian refugees don't have access to the education system in Lebanon. They don't have access to the public schooling. They don't have access to most of the universities. So what happens is the UN is providing education in the camps in Lebanon, but they're incredibly under-resourced. The ability for Palestinian students to translate that into higher education opportunities overseas is incredibly low and incredibly remote. I meet people who um, have gone to Europe, who fled to Europe, through, usually by going up through Turkey or down to Egypt and making the very dangerous crossing over the Mediterranean Sea, because they know there's there's nothing for them in Lebanon. They're not wanted there. They're in a permanent state of temporality. They want a better life for their children. They want their children to have access to education, to have access to work, to have their human rights. But Palestinian refugees in Lebanon are a special subgroup. They're not actually covered by the UN Convention on Human Rights because they predate the convention. So for them, it's incredibly hard to get a permanent refugee status in a third country. And so for most Palestinian refugees in Lebanon, your options, if if you try and go to Europe or go to a third country, is to move from one kind of state of temporality into another. I mean, we know that the only resolution to this is a resolution to the wider conflict, a kind of granting of rights for Palestinian refugees to return to their home, as is enshrined in international law and in the Article One in UN Resolution One Nine Four.
1: Well, into this situation comes refugees from the the war in Syria. Is it possible that some of those refugees are actually Palestinians who have been living in Syria?
5: Yes, absolutely. Five point one million. Syrian refugees currently outside of Syria at the moment, 2 million of whom have gone to Lebanon. Uh, it's estimated around 500,000 uh, of that number are Palestinian Syrian refugees who are essentially refugees twice over, who are refugees who fled Palestine into Syria and were living in the refugee camps in Syria, for example, Yarmouk camp, who have then had to flee again into a new country. And it's been especially hard to these refugees who fled into Lebanon because again Lebanon has no permanent status for Palestinian refugees regardless of whether you're born and raised as a Palestinian refugee in Lebanon or whether you've had been forced to flee from the Syrian conflict what we're seeing in our projects is in the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon there's been a significant increase in Palestinian Palestinian Syrian refugees because they've had a distant family member who is living in one of the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. So because of that, they've gone to Lebanon, to the safety of Lebanon, and gone and moved inside the Palestinian camps inside Lebanon, and this has significantly increased the population of the camps. In One camp that we work in, Barajna. I mean, there's no definitive population count because of the nature of the camps, but it was estimated that the camp population was around 22,000 refugees in 2011. It's now estimated that the camp is sitting somewhere between 45 and 50,000 people. It's more than doubled uh, since the start of the Syrian refugee crisis. And you have situations where four or five families are living in a one-bedroom house. It's incredibly common because... If you're a refugee Palestinian Syrian refugee family coming into Lebanon, you have the same restrictions on income that Palestinians in Lebanon have. You cannot go out and find work in, in most of these professions. Your only option is to pool whatever resources you have with other families and live in these incredibly squalid, cramped conditions in the camp and wait for a resolution, wait for safety, wait for... The ability to return home and to continue your life.
1: You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett, and I'm speaking with Jeremy Smith, who works with AFIDA, the Trade Union Overseas Aid Organisation, in the Middle East. And I imagine that the, the access to food and water was pretty sparse before this? How are they coping?
5: The reality is. A lot of people just aren't eating every day. About three and a half years ago when I first went to Lebanon, I met two kids outside a shawarma shop. One was seven, one was nine. And I've been going back to Lebanon for nearly four years now and they're they're outside the same shawarma shop begging every day. And about two years ago, I remember talking to them and saying how terrible it is that um, that they're begging and and talking to them about their family and, and, and what their home situation is like. And I remember the older boy looked at me and he said, Yeah, but we eat every day. We're eating every day. When we go home and we play with our friends in the evening, they're hungry because they haven't eaten that day. At least we get food while we're here. And for families who have five or six kids who are living on an average of something, it's estimated around, I think, 80 or $85 US a month, they don't have the financial capacity to feed everyone every day and there, there isn't the international support for refugees from Syria inside Lebanon um, that in other countries. And there's fatigue in the international community to donate to this refugee crisis. So a lot of the services that were initially there at the start of the war have either stopped or reduced significantly. And it's at the point now where, you know, putting lack of health care aside or education aside or lack of, you know, achieving human rights aside, people just aren't getting enough food to eat. So we at the theater, we we um, worked with our partner about three years ago to ensure that in all of our projects in the refugee camps in Lebanon, we're providing a daily breakfast for every kid who comes along to ensure that there is at least that baseline one meal a day for these kids. But we also know what our wedding times are like for us, and we know that a lot of kids just are not getting a meal every day.
1: What about the children who aren't Palestinian from Syria, where do they go?
5: Up until the start of this year there wasn't an education option for those children.
1: What I mean is that these refugees who are Palestinian background are moving in with Palestinian families in Beirut. what if they're not Palestinian children or families, where do they go?
5: A lot of them have been moving into the Palestinian refugee camps just because it's cheaper to move in with families there to, even if you don't know the family, to move in with them to pay a tiny bit of rent, um, which helps the Palestinian family living in the camp, than it is to to rent in Lebanon. There are some informal camps along the border, but the Lebanese government has been very clear that they don't want to replicate what happened in 1948 with the Palestinian refugees with the Syrian refugees. So unlike in Jordan, where they have large refugee camp almost cities like Zaatari refugee camp. That hasn't been started and supported by the Lebanese government in Lebanon. There are refugee camps on the corner. There was a recent, I think it was 7.30, did a, a story on it uh, a couple of weeks ago, but they're in the minority. Most Syrian refugees are forced to live in poorer areas of Lebanon, um, in poor areas of south Beirut, where multiple families will go together and try and rent an accommodation in a private rental. I think it's around 12 or 15% of the Syrian population are living or sleeping in the, the most Arab cities will have apartment buildings and a small room at the bottom for like a kind of a doorman or a service person who would be working in that apartment building. And I read recently that about 12% of families and, and Syrian refugees are living in that tiny room that's being kind of rented out by the landlords. And essentially, because this has been going on for five years, nearly six years, anywhere you can. And Lebanon is not a cheap country in the Middle East. Rent in Lebanon is is quite expensive and without access to work, families are essentially huddling together, renting the same place and living in incredibly cramped and overcrowded conditions.
1: Apart from making sure that children have a breakfast, what else is a, a feeder doing?
5: We are working to provide education for children for Palestinian children from Lebanon, Palestinian Syrian children who've come in since the war. The Syrian children who've come in since the war and for, for other communities that are disadvantaged in Lebanon. We don't provide education based on nationality lines, as most other education services are. We then use that education as a central hub to try and do community development within the camps. We try and support women to find work while they're children in the education services because women are much more likely to find work than their husbands whether that's in menial work or in secretary work or informal opportunities for work. We also do regular vocational training for women and education seminars and group discussions around specific key issues, the idea being not only to provide information to women living in the camp but also to create kind of peer support networks inside the camp. One of the things that we're targeting is a real prevalence of gender-based violence and child protection issues. In the camps there is no I mean there are no DV services. There are no shelters for women fleeing violence. There is no child protection body. And so with our partner we're trying to create support networks between women where safety plans can be created and enacted and women can work together to support each other to gain strength and solidarity and strengthen connections where women can support their children to be protected from violence, from abuse, together through safety plans to be connected in with organizations, with civil society organizations that that have come up in the camp. So we do a lot of work in that space. We work with refugees from Syria and Palestine who are living with a disability. There is no disability support program in the camps and so we work with children and and, uh, older people who have a disability to support them to get basic medical care that they need, but also to provide disability support services that are providing education for kids. Children who are living in the camps, living with a disability, don't have any access to education. So we provide a disability support program which is actually providing education to children. And then this year we've actually started a new project which is an accelerated learning program for Syrian refugee children who've missed out on numerous years of schooling. This project came about because at the start of the year, the Lebanese government, which had previously not allowed any Syrian child to enter education in Lebanon, to access public schools. But there was a key problem where the children were about three or four years behind what their age was. They'd missed out on schools, and they were therefore about three or four years older than the peers in their classes. And so they were being turned away from school. And so you'd have a nine-year-old kid who should be in class with six-year-olds, but it's too too much bigger and rougher, and and the schools weren't accepting that. So what we've started to do is we've started an accelerated learning program for those children to catch up, to learn the basics, to learn how to read and write, so that this week, as, as school returns in Lebanon this week, those children will be able to start at an age-appropriate level and not actually miss out on their entire education just because of a quirk of their age when they were forced to flee into Lebanon. And
1: also psychological support for these children, thinking of the things that they've seen in a war-torn country.
5: We work with uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, in the camp who have one psychologist for the entire camp. In Berger Brajna for example, a camp of... Over 45,000 people, they have one psychologist who works with women and children who've been impacted by the trauma of forced migration, of having to flee, to uproot their lives, who've seen, obviously, horrific things, both in Syria and in the camps. And we work with teachers to ensure that they are aware of the indicators of trauma in children because they're the front line, that they can see the children who are showing that they have trauma, who, who are showing the signs of significant trauma, and can provide support with those children and also ensure that we have referral pathways going to psychologists and going to MSF to do more ongoing work. In in the project, we have a social worker, a fantastic woman who works intensively with children, women, to address the trauma, to try and move people towards recovery and, and help children I guess, understand the emotions that they have and the experiences that they've had and to to recover from that, to heal from that, to move towards more of a healthy childhood.
1: And all these services for children, women, refugees, it all costs money.
5: It does. And there's just nowhere near enough money. Uh, Lebanon has not received the same attention that Jordan has, that other countries have. Because this, this crisis has been going on for so long, international communities are just tired. They have fatigue. When the European so-called refugee crisis started, a lot of the money that was being given to refugees in Lebanon and Jordan were reallocated back to Europe to support refugees arriving in Europe. Because sadly in this space, when a government announces a big new bucket of money for a project, it's not usually a new bucket of money. it's, It's money that's being reallocated from somewhere else to here. And so what we saw around 2012, 2013, 2014 was a large amount of money being taken away from Lebanon and Jordan and Turkey and being instead invested into the European countries as part of their response. And that's just pulled the rug out of most of the programs that were working inside the refugee camps. And then we've seen a real increase in the demand for our smaller projects inside the camp because the larger projects just are not receiving the funding that they need to do the work that they need.
1: And, of course, AFIDA needs help too to fund their projects.
5: Absolutely, and you can donate to our work with refugees in Lebanon through our website, fida.org.au. We use that money very effectively. We use it to support vulnerable communities inside Lebanon, inside the refugee camps. We support building movements inside refugee camps, that have a flow-on effect and a ripple effect of increasing people's capacities and supporting communities to better support themselves. Um, Our real focus of working is not that we go in and and do something. We partner with local organizations and their capacity is increased and they then work with other Syrian, Palestinian, Palestinian organizations to to create more networks that have a further ripple-out effect. We, like many other NGOs, are receiving much less money from the government. Uh, Aid expenditure in Australia was slashed by a third in the the 2015-2016 budget Uh, and there's pressures to reduce it again. And so, you know, we really are needing people in the community to support us continue this incredibly important work.
1: You actually live with the Palestinians in Ramallah.
5: That's right. I live in Ramallah, which is the current de facto capital of the... Palestinian uh, state of Palestine. It's about 15 kilometers north of Jerusalem, inside the West Bank. And I live there and, and, and travel to Lebanon several times a year to work on our projects and check up on our projects there.
1: What's life like in Ramallah?
5: It's very hard. Things in Palestine are becoming harder. They've been deteriorating the last couple of years. There's been an increase in military presence inside the West Bank there's been uh, increase in raids, in administrative detention of Palestinians, but there's also been increasing pressure on just civil society in Palestine, speaking out and, and talking about the realities of on the ground, you know, oppression and, and, and the way the occupation is manifested. You know, in, in my house, for example, in summer we only receive water two to three days a week, and I live in one of the, I guess, more built-up areas of Ramallah. Um, a lot of the West Bank in the summertime receives water for a couple of hours a week on one specific day. Um, blackouts are still very frequent, whereas, you know, I can I can almost see a settlement from my house. It's just around the corner. There, it's an illegal settlement living in the West Bank, and they have full water every day, much as we do, you know, here in Sydney or Melbourne or anywhere in Australia. And they have electricity 24-7. And just on the other side, where Israel is the... Occupying power and has responsibility for infrastructure, for water and electricity. There's insufficient infrastructure. There's uh, been an increase in clashes between Palestinians and Israelis because of the increasing settler numbers and, I guess, a a losing of hope that the two-state solution is viable. And you know what I hear from my friends is we can see clearly now that there is no genuine intention for a fair and a just resolution to this conflict. And then, of course, with the election of Trump, people are, I guess, very pessimistic about how that will impact on on the peace process and how that will impact on the day-to-day lives of Palestinians. We know that the the initial attempts Trump has made in the area have been very one-sided. The people that uh, Trump has appointed to lead the negotiations are very one-sided in what they've said publicly and the the groups that they're members of. I mean, I won't say too much more about that, but uh, it's worth going and Googling that and and, and Googling, you know, Jared Kushner, for example, who is the president's son-in-law and his special appointed person to take the lead on Israel and Palestine. Go and Google what he said about the conflicts and and what he believes about the two-state solution. You'll you'll be quite shocked that this person is the the lead negotiator. So people are are seeing that, and they're kind of hunkering down for, I think, four bad years and, and, you know, an increase in in cover for Israel and their settlement activities and, and their illegal activities. What that just means for life on the ground is things are just getting harder, and hope is fading quicker. But Palestinians are incredibly resilient. They know that, in the end, movements that are just and movements that are right will usually succeed. So a lot of people do... Still have a lot of hope and are still moving towards manifesting that hope, in Palestinian state, but they're doing it in incredibly difficult circumstances.
1: Thanks for being there with them, Jeremy.
5: Thank you, Jan, and um, I mean a special thank you to everyone who supports us with the FIDA. The support that we give is, is is very much about building Palestinian communities and Palestinian movements, and that's just so incredibly important because that is what's sustainable, and that is the kind of support that leads to long-term solutions. But thank you very much for having me on, Jan.
1: And that's Jeremy Smith, the coordinator of the program for the Middle East for AFIDA. And if you can help, it's AFIDA, A-P-H-E-D-A, which is the Trade Union Overseas Aid Organisation. Just look up that AFIDA and you'll find how you can assist, particularly with Palestinian children, some of whom over Doubly refugees, some people forced into Lebanon from Palestine. Others went to Syria, and now the ones in Syria have been forced out. I'm sorry, I've got that wrong, I think. Forced out of Palestine into Lebanon, and now many who went to Syria many years ago, their children and grandchildren are now ending up in those same refugee camps in Lebanon. If you can help, a feeder. Go to 3cr.org.au/shop
3: to buy online, or drop into the station during business hours.
1: Uh, hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food.
4: Hi, my name is Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome, and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. La, la. Friends of the Earth
5: Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience.
2: A 3CR supporter.
1: After years of advocating that the war effort in Afghanistan be abandoned, President Trump has opened the door to an increase in US troops there, America's second longest military conflict. He said as recently as the campaign for presidency, that the war was too costly in lives and money, but the generals have won. One person who has visited Afghanistan many times since the U.S. unleashed war on that country is Kathy Kelly from The Voices for Creative Nonviolence. I began this interview with Kathy first to establish the cost in terms of lives lost and destroyed by this second longest U.S. war in history, plus destroyed infrastructure, plus loss of development. Well, I think that people have looked
3: at four decades of warfare, and it's as though so a perpetual warfare stage is their situation. And there's been so much displacement. So many people have had to seek refuge. So many have left the country. I mean, I can tell you now that my young friends honestly can't anticipate Having any kind of meaningful work to do, they'll be lucky if they can harvest the land and live in a subsistence way. But were they to be willing to pick up a gun, then they could get a job. And so between the opium trade and involvement in security or in military groups or working for a warlord or working for the Afghan military, those are the kinds of prospects people have to earn an income and, of course, with so much displacement, that's led to a huge rise in child laborers being the only ones who can bring an income into a family living in a refugee camp. And why do people run? Well, because their village was bombed or because they're afraid that one of the warring parties might somehow accuse them of supporting the other party. There are many, many reasons why people run and flee. The economy is in Catchers. The the government isn't able to do anything, really, to help people in terms of decent health care, education, clean water, food distribution, electrical supplies. And so it's a, a broken, bloodied, battered country. And I think that's had everything to do with the United States exacerbating the welfare. there. Certainly one of the questions we have to ask is, did all of the previous military action exacerbate the problems there? And I think it, it certainly has.
1: The loss of life, the psychological impacts on the people?
3: Bereavement, certainly, right. Um, loss because of death, inability to function because of having severe acute malnourishment and then somebody becomes more or less a burden to society. Loss because of family breakup and then loss because of divisions between people. You know, some might say, well, I'm desperate, I'm going to go work for this armed group, and then the others turn against that person, even within a family.
1: And then there was Hillary Clinton and her vows to look after the women and children in Afghanistan.
3: Well, you know, I think that was a particularly pernicious example of the United States military marketing a war by using women and children, and other people's concerns for women and children. There is no evidence, really, that girls have made a significant gain in terms of literacy in present-day Afghanistan. Actually, the government that the United States has supported has put through into their legislation draconian laws saying that a man has the right to beat a woman because she's his spouse. So the idea that somehow the United States military presence was going to protect the concerns of women and children, grandmothers, infants, toddlers. It was cool. And I remember once watching a film that had been made quite popular by a number of feminist women's groups, and it showed U.S. military soldiers going into a refugee camp that I'd actually gone into several times myself, and they were wearing full military garb, and they had rifles poking out of their backpacks, and they were bringing food to women, and of course the women had to, you know, be grateful in front of the cameras, but I thought, well, that's a pretty cynical thing because those soldiers quite likely lived right across the street from that refugee camp. There's a huge, sprawling U.S. military base, and into that base all day long there would be supplies of water and food and fuel, and none of that went on a regular basis or any basis into the refugee camp.
1: And then there's the, the cost to the people of the United States, the, the enormous amounts of money being spent, the resources, and the lives lost there as well. If you
3: calculate in the expense to care for people who have returned with post-traumatic stress, and you know we in the United States have to grapple with the fact that 22 combat veterans per day commit suicide. I mean, you cannot tell that population, no, we don't have any way to care for you. And particularly if they come back blinded or uh, as amputees, people need physical therapy and care and emotional and mental support throughout the rest of their lives and their families as well. When you factor in that cost, along with the cost of shipping over all of those munitions, all of those supplies, setting up... Is paying off the warlords, paying off the Taliban, who often were the warlords, attacking the very roadways along which supplies were sent. You're talking about billions, and then eventually trillions of dollars. And then there's another 1.2 billion dollars, some more money than was spent on the Marshall Plan, that went into non-governmental expenses. But once again, we didn't see the conditions that would be indexes for quality of life were it all being improved and so i think we have to ask ourselves is military power useful ever to repair a region
1: what led you to go to afghanistan the first time kathy you'd been to many other areas in the world war zones where people are suffering what was it about afghanistan i and my
3: companions jan have learned to trust the possibility of relationships Personal relationships as a window through which to at least begin, and I do mean begin, to understand a culture that can be very different from our own. And it happened that a group of teenagers were writing to us through their mentor, Hakim, a Singaporean doctor, medical doctor, who had um, become somebody who had gathered them together to try to see could they imagine living together, working together inter ethnically. And we didn't really quite honestly pay much attention. I didn't, because I thought, oh, I bet this is some government group that the Afghan government is trying to promote, and I I don't really have any extra time. But we were fasting for the Witness Against Torture Fast, and a friend of ours in the Cox Christie group came over, and he was kind of exasperated. He said, do you know, do you realize that there are teenagers sitting in a puck tent on a mountainside in the winter in a remote province of Afghanistan, and they are fasting with you? And we said, is that right? <laughs> so we asked him, how did you know? And he said, well, if any of you would read your emails, you'd know too. And so I started you know, reading my emails, and we, we made a connection with them during the fast, and it was so touching. They had heard one of our members fasting once the minute it was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday, and do they know anything about Dr. King? And they were scrambling to see. Who would read a memorized quote that they had or cherished from Dr. King's speeches? So after that, I thought, oh, I would really, really like to meet these young people. And we were trying to figure out the consequences of U.S. drone attacks in Pakistan. So while there, I realized, well, for $100, I could cross over and go to visit Afghanistan. So... I had gone to visit the emergency surgical centers of victims of war, and we'd gotten to you know people from there through working it up, breaking the economic sanctions. We were so impressed, my companion Josh Murray and I, with what we saw at the emergency hospital, but then we were also able to call the youngsters in the Bamyan province, and they said, please come again, and, and you can come to visit us. So we were able to get on a UN flight and go to visit them, and, and then Quite honestly, they were then um, afterward subjected to death threats. And we said, why don't you move to Kabul? At the time, Kabul was a lot safer. That's not true now. And it would be cheaper for us to rent a place year-round, and then you could host our groups when they come over, than to pay $50 a night to stay in a hotel for each of five people that might go over. So that's how we started sending small groups. And the security has gotten so increasingly bad that we now only send people over by one and by two. And I used to think nothing of going over there for two months, but now in probably 10 to 12 days is as long as we think it's okay to go in. But meanwhile, they've been doing so, so well with the APJ Project and with the street kids' school. I mean, they don't get any government help, none, none, none but they have managed to reach out and share whatever resources they can come up with with others. And I was so touched because they knew of our concern about Yemen, and then I got word from them that at the end of Ramadan they had collected $45. Now, this is by giving up bus money and walking rather than taking the bus or just scrimping however they could, and they collected the $45 for us to get over to Yemen.
1: Can you talk a little bit about those small groups of youth who came from different areas of Afghanistan? What did they tell you about life for them, living in a perpetual well, actually, war? Mm,
3: well, we're, we're so much looking forward to September 21st. That's um, the International Day of Peace, and that will be the culmination of a week of these youngsters gathering from various provinces. And I'm sure it will be very, very fascinating to hear their reports. Anybody could listen in by going to the Global Days of Listening phone call on September 23rd, as I will do, to, to learn more. But so far, when they talk to their relatives in places like Paktika, Paktia, Logar, Ghazni, uh, people feel very, very vulnerable to warlords. I have to keep saying the plural. You know, there are many, many different warlords, not only the Taliban. And, you know, many feel that the U.S. is one of the many warlords of you know, NATO troops and the U.S. There's a sense that uh, there's nowhere to hide, nowhere to turn. If people can't get their crops to the marketplace, then, you know, they can't earn a living. And so sometimes they'll just give up and, and move on to someplace else. And this migration of people, into like refugee situations says to. Very, very hard-earned families, and families feel responsible for others to be even worse off than they are. Or there's so many widows and uncared for children because men have been killed in the military or are working for various warlords.
1: This, the warlords, has that got worse, the situation that they've controlled in certain areas, or has that always been like that in Afghanistan?
3: Well, you know, there have always been warlords. The fellow who is now the vice president, Dostum, D-O-S-T-U-M, General Dostum, was a hugely feared warlord who was responsible for a notorious crime against humanity when he forced people suspected of being Taliban into two boxcars on a train and, and never gave them water, and they it to death, and he shot bullets into the boxcars. And so he became the vice president, and has never been called to accountability for that. And many other crimes but he has peers who have done equally horrendous and frightening things but how do warlords get the weapons i mean it's not like there are factories manufacturing weapons inside of afghanistan but so much of the weaponry has come in through the united states and often what happens is that humanitarian relief of one sort or another will come in a warlord will take control of it sell it or in some way siphon it off into money to perpetuate this power, and then that will create more conflict and more displacement, and then more humanitarian relief is supposed to come in to help deal with it. So it's a vicious circle. This is why I think we have to ask, do previous military actions exacerbate the problem? And shouldn't we recognize that military power isn't useful to repair a region?
1: Tell me more about the work that you do with the young people. Well, we've been so fortunate. We um, can go to their street kids' school, sit down
3: on the floor, and watch young idealistic people present nonviolence courses, literacy courses, mathematics courses, uh, you know, a bit about hygiene. and, And they create such a community of support for these youngsters who are working often on the streets still and are really prime candidates for recruitment into human trafficking, into prostitution, or into drug rings. And so they literally are pulling them out, being a magnet and a supportive community. And then at the same time, they can look to the the women who want to feed their children. They don't want the children out in the marketplace collecting scraps like potatoes or turnip scraps or working for a kitten set on the street in the cold weather or the harsh sun. But, you know, they don't have jobs. So at least for part of the year, they're able to give the women a living wage making these big, heavy, quilted blankets. They really are like social workers. They fan out, they go up the mountainside, they go out to the camps, they ask survey questions. And I really like to juxtapose that with surveillance of the United States there. Because the United States in its surveillance learns nothing about the condition or the plight of a grandmother and a mother and a toddler living under a tarp Covering. But, you know, my young friends Abu and Sarkunah and Ali and Zakula can tell you very minute details about what happened to that trio, the mother, the grandmother, the older son, and what their prospects are and how often they eat beans and how often they get clean water and how much Hadid earned going around the marketplace doing odd jobs, even you know, putting a scale down on the this- Sidewalk and asking people to step on it and give him a few pennies as they weigh themselves. So imagine how long you'd have to do that in order to be able to buy, you know, even a small amount of bread. So they know all that about many, many families. And uh, this impresses me deeply. I've watched them work hard. Their accounting puts me to shame. I mean, every single week they sit down, pull out their receipts, and monitor one another and they make sure that everything balances and nobody could ever, from this system that they have, take something without it being pretty evident.
1: And these young people, what, in their late teens, early 20s? Well, I first knew the Afghan Peace Volunteers when they were
3: in Bamiyan, when they were between the ages of, say, 12 and 17. So now some of them are married and with children. It was a joy to kind of sense its intergenerational pattern and to, to, to recognize how happy a few of them have become. And yet I also can see what an affliction wedding culture can be to a family because if somebody is going to be placed in terrible debt often to pay for weddings and they're very, very, very expensive.
1: Tell me about some of the people that you've taken with you to Afghanistan and in particular Aaron Hughes who was a veteran who actually served in Iraq.
3: Aaron is somebody whom I first met when he was a, an art student at a university that had invited me to spend a week there. And his fellow students said, you know, this guy's really, really, really shy. and He barely will talk to anybody. And he, he basically feels like he only can talk to people who have been in Iraq because he had been so affected by his time there as a soldier. And so would I talk with him? And I thought, you know, we'd have a quiet room, but we were in the middle of a crowded cafeteria, I really couldn't think of anything to say, and I couldn't hear anything he said. And it was just a pretty stilted non-starter of the conversation. The next time I saw him, he had become the Iraq Veterans Against War representative to speak at a parish gathering where I was also invited, and I was riveted by his speech. He has been one of the most extraordinary, gifted spokespersons, both through speech and also through his artwork. And of course the key project was something that will last in the memory of everybody who has been part of it. And he brought it over to Kabul. I should just have him speak directly with him about that sometime. Well he's quite a quite a character. He's just finished time at the Highlander School, which educated people during the civil rights movement. I'm eager to get back to Chicago. He's moved to my city and, and I very much want to hear what he has to say. And he stays in touch with the Afghan peace volunteers in the team. And I think he's putting out recipes now, recipes from countries where the United States has been at war.
1: And it was very moving for him, wasn't it, to go to Afghanistan?
3: I think the time that he spent in Iraq was a time wherein he converted, after he had come back, to someone who was intensely curious. About the people in Iraq, and, and he hadn't at all been curious before. He just kind of followed the military line of bulking them all up I and mean, then uh, in Hadjis, So I found him to be intensely curious about Afghanistan as well, and I was deeply uh, appreciative of that. He, you know, at great risk to his own health, went over there in the wintertime. He's somebody who, while he was in Iraq, contracted a disease that has affected his lungs. And believe me, the air combo is so bad that it's not a good place for people who have um, weak lungs to go to. But he went, and I was, I was grateful that he left with health intact, although he was quite sick upon return. I watched just how wholeheartedly he plunged into teaching the street kids potato graphic art and different printmaking skills helped the kid who up the greenhouse, he was so tall, it was a big help to have him there. It was really wonderful.
1: And of course, he was one of the very many veterans of the United States military, greatly mentally impacted by his service.
3: Well, I think so. I mean, uh, I was just at the Veterans for Peace conference in Chicago recently, and uh, people have so much pain from the Vietnam War, from the Korean War, I've seen these vets basically say to the Iraq we've got your back. You know, we, we want to give you cover. But but um, as people come back from these various wars, you know, they come back battered. And, 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 and it's less and less of a population of the United States that's going through the military into other countries. Many are going as mercenaries, as security contractors. But um, it's not as though you've got a huge population of the United States that's directly in touch with people that are in the war zones and and are communicating on their behalf or are expressing concern. So I think they can also feel quite isolated.
1: What was the last visit of yours, Kathy? How long ago?
3: Uh, Well, I was there in April, and I'll go again in October. I would have so liked to go in September, but we're sending Brian Terrell, so I hope you can talk with him after he returns.
1: And what will you be doing this next time?
3: Oh, well, Brian will be with the group that meets from all 33 provinces, and he's going to be invited to speak a little bit about, um, you know, international appreciation for what they're doing and, and the need for the kind of method they're devising of, you know, building relationships and counting on nonviolent means to occasion change. And then when I go, I'll, I'll really hope to be able to be an eyewitness to the build-up of the Dubai Project and the Street Kids School because, quite honestly, you know, the funding is very reliant on that kind of storytelling.
1: The question's being asked more and more now is, will the war in Afghanistan ever end? Truthfully, Jenna,
3: I think the longest war in U.S. US history has been the Iraq War. And, you know, that stretches back to the 1980s when the United States was arming both sides in the conflict. Henry Kissinger said things couldn't be better. They're killing each other and using our weapons to do it. And it stretches up to today. And so when we look at this perpetual warfare state that the United States has become, it means that other countries are seemingly in a perpetual war as well. But maybe the the root for perpetual war is within the united states and and then we have to ask questions is there any justification moral justification economic justification practical justification for preserving a perpetual warfare state it makes us you know long for the time when the sun will set on the u.s empire long for
1: it and many many million people around the world will be longing for it as well as you
3: so it's good to imagine that solidarity because sometimes we can feel like a very, very small group over here. It's another problem, really. The people in the military aren't really seen as people that go off and fight wars. they so people who wear uniforms, who get on the planes before everybody else, who get celebrated at you know, big sporting events, but, you know, they march in parades. But they're not seen as people who are commissioned to go and kill and destroy another land because we just don't see very much of that.
1: And increasingly with the drones.
3: Oh, yes, yes. Thanks for mentioning that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think the drones really do represent a kind of a sniper warfare, that people aren't on their bellies and in, you know, strange spots and fixated on a target. They're places that look like skirt stars with lots of different consoles and examining highways all day long. And once they fixate on their target, then they really are following that person day by day. And I think it can be quite traumatizing to pull a lever and destroy the person. But increasingly, the military is having a hard time finding recruits. They're actually pulling in non-commissioned officers to engage in recruitment in the schools and at the neighborhood places where they try to convince kids to join. And they're also offering $100,000 people who will join the US Air Force as drone pilots. So they're having a hard time. Kids aren't really terribly interested in signing up.
1: And unfortunately the Australian government has got plans to have these drones here in in our arsenal as well.
3: Mm. Well I surely hope that people in Australia will insist that their government somehow justify to them why they would cooperate with a belligerent warfare states uh, that is increasingly jeopardizing security for the world and if australians have anything to do with sending weapons to saudi arabia a close ally of the united states as it pounds on yemen uh, i think this also bears really grave investigation
1: thank you so much kathy
3: oh Jan, thank you for getting in touch it's always like a little retreat
1: (laughs) okay bye-bye And that is Kathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence speaking to me, that time from New York. And she actually was in a park with the birds for that interview. It's coming up to 5.30. In a few moments we'll be hearing from Tristan about life in the Basque Country of Spain.
0: Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the mineral below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419 8377.
4: Liberty Victoria presents Fearless Voices, a compelling afternoon blending the sweet and angry songs of John Lennon, performed by
3: Liz Stringer and Matt Walker with a cacophonous cabal of shouters, Casey Bonetto,
4: Alicia Sometimes, Paul Stewart and Stuart Grant, along with Melbourne's best slam poets. The event will be emceed by Johnny Topper on Sunday, the 1st of October at the Thornbury Theatre. Doors open at 2pm and for bookings head to libertyvictoria.org.au Fearless Voices Sunday the 1st of October 2pm at the Thornbury Theatre Liberty Victoria Defending and Extending Civil Liberties and Human Rights is a 3CR supporter
5: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia.
0: Step three is finding there's a tactic
5: when
3: everyone believes it could be true, that if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change.
1: Tristan Epstein has spent most of his time in recent years living and working in the Basque homeland in Spain. He was recently back for a visit. I asked him, now that ETA is gone, is there still a large majority of the Basque people in favour of self-determination?
4: More than ever before, yeah. ETA was quite decisive and there was a pretty definitive rejection of violence by Basque society. So in the late 90s, there were protests of half a million people in Basque country against the use of violence by ETA. So now the issue is a lot more ambiguous because it's not that there's a nationalist movement divided over the question of violence or non-violence. There's a universal commitment to non-violence and everybody's working together towards independence.
1: How did it get to the stage where they decided enough was enough?
4: There's quite a number of factors. I think we've seen globally because it uh, was founded in the late 1950s, I think, And at that time, there was a whole lot of national independence movements all over the world, from Algeria, El Salvador. Gradually, they've come to an end, more or less, and generally also been quite unsuccessful. So in the case of El Salvador and Nicaragua, the political parties that took power as a a result of armed national independence struggles, and our horrifically right-wing, the FMLN in El Salvador and the FSLN in Nicaragua, have both become ultra-conservative, corrupt, Catholic. It just has lost all sort of attraction in terms of it working. And then if you look at Sahara and, and Palestine armed struggles, which didn't achieve national independence, those movements have also taken a turn to the right, have also become quite authoritarian, also haven't contributed very much to the well-being of the people they're supposed to represent. So armed struggle has kind of gone out of fashion everywhere. You couple that with the fact that it wasn't working, that there were a thousand people in prison. And they're still there? There's 500 still in prison, and there's more people going to prison. So I've said that there's a universal commitment to non violence. That's true on behalf of the national independence movement, but not true on behalf of the Spanish and French governments, especially the Spanish government.
1: What sort of sentences are they serving?
4: Something that on 3CR we're broadcasting a program which we produce at Alavedi Radio, which is a radio station in Basque Country. If you look up What the Basque on the internet, you'll find the radio station. And just last program, it's broadcast once a month, and just last month we were talking about the case of Al Chaswa, which is a town which votes overwhelmingly for the nationalist left, and that town has an enormous barracks of the federal police, which basically works as a military occupation. Some off-duty police and their girlfriends went to a bar of the nationalist left, which is like somebody from the Nazi party turning up at 3CR. And predictably enough, there was a a fight. And in the course of that fight, one of the police got their ankle broken. So you're talking about a fight in a bar, one broken ankle, not a big deal. Like maybe someone could go to prison, like a fight in a bar. These are things that happen, especially when they're provoked like that. About, I think it's eight young people, we're talking 16 to 21, have been charged with terrorist offences because of that fight, and they're currently on trial, and the public prosecutor is asking for 50 years in prison for three of them. So that type of idea that everything to do with anybody who's interested in national independence, anything that they do is terrorism, and that terrorism needs to be published with infinite prison, that's still happening.
1: And it doesn't matter whether it's Basque or Catalonia or anywhere else, they get the same sort of treatment?
4: No, Basque country, because it does have a history of being an armed struggle. As far as I know, that kind of use of the anti-terrorist legislation hasn't yet been applied in Catalonia. That's not to say that it couldn't happen, but as yet, it hasn't happened. What's the government
1: of Spain like at the moment?
4: The government of Spain continues there. Pepe the Partido Popular, which is like the Liberal Party, has held on to government. So it's still a far-right government. The political landscape is considerably more interesting in Australia because you have the Pepe, which is kind of like the Liberal Party, the PSOE, which is kind of like the Labour Party, but then there's a third force, Podemos, um, which came out of the Indignados Quinceme, kind of like the Occupy Wall Street in Spain. And that political party is now getting up to 30% of the vote. And even though nationally it hasn't done that well, it does hold um, the cities of Madrid and Barcelona, which is pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. And what's the interference or control over the Basque Country by that right-wing party nationally?
4: Basque Country... Yeah, the regional politics of Spain is very complicated. So the particular autonomy that Basque country has comes to do with the Fueros, which was a medieval agreement between the Kingdom of Leon and the Kingdom of Nevada. And so it's quite Basantine. And there's a series of privileges of which the Basque government has. And they control... They have financial autonomy, for example. And every budget, the... Government of Basque Country negotiates with the government of the state government of Madrid about who's going to pay how much money. And that's also a big difference between the nationalist movement in Catalonia and in Basque Country. In Catalonia it's one of the rich areas of Spain, so they make a large contribution to the Spanish government which goes to the poorer regions of Spain. In Basque country, the Basque country doesn't have to make that contribution. So there's a lot more right-wing support for independence in Catalonia, with the idea that this money is ours and we want it to spend on us. So there's a kind of more Catalan xenophobia than Basque xenophobia because of that financial autonomy.
1: You said there was a a military base there where the the fight was. How many of those are in the Basque country? Well,
4: they're they're militarised, so it's the Federal Police. And the Federal Police in Basque Country have been militarised since the 1950s. Well, that's happening in lots
1: of countries now, even here.
4: Yeah, 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 it is. But uh, you could definitely confuse the police stations or the Federal Police for army bases, barbed wire, big fences, enclosed communes. There's villages. There's a whole series of small villages, 500 to 1,000 people, where the electoral results will be in a village of 500 people, 498 votes for the nationalist left, and then the local policeman and the priest will vote for somebody else. And that's how the vote count will be every year.
1: Has the Bras country escaped the, the general malaise of the Spanish economy since ni- 2009?
4: Things are less bad in the Basque country, a big part of that. Is to do with the Mondragon Cooperative, which is a big workers' cooperative. Huge. Yeah. How did that come into being? The Mondragon Cooperative actually came out of a... there was the idea of a parish priest wanting to create local businesses in small towns where there was very little employment. How long ago? I think that happened around the 1950s as well, yeah. The Catholic Church in Basque Country is kind of different because in other regions of Spain, very identified with the government and the far right, in the bus country actually some of the founding members members of ETA were studying to be priests and then the Mondragon cooperative so the idea of liberation theology has been a bit more important fast forwarding very fast to the financial crisis Mondragon is an industrial collective that makes white goods buses bicycles or bear bicycles which maybe you've seen around in Melbourne but actually the most successful part of the collective is the the bank and that bank you're talking about 10,000 quite well-paid industrial workers, all of their superannuation goes into the bank owned by the cooperative. And that bank wasn't speculating nearly as much as other banks in the property market and the stock market, but instead it was reinvesting in the industrial capacity of the collective itself. So after the financial crisis, a whole lot of banks went bankrupt and the Cacalabarok came out of the other side of it really well. Um, The other big point in favour is that the Mondragon Cooperative has a rule that the highest paid worker gets paid six times, the lowest paid worker, which isn't entirely true because they do have subcontracts and overseas production. But it does mean that the people running the bank, which is now one of the major banks in Spain, are getting salaries of maybe a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year as opposed to a couple of hundred million, which is what people get paid to run banks elsewhere. So all of that extra money also has keep bus country afloat
1: so does that money from the bank stays in the bus country um,
4: far more than it does in other cases yeah yeah i mean we've seen in the panama papers what happens what rich people do with their money they don't really invest it in social enterprise that does happen in bus country but not as much
1: what about schools and hospitals and health clinics who runs those
4: so again just to give you an idea of how regional it is The Basque Country is the only region in Spain, as far as I know, that has a welfare system. Elsewhere in Spain, if you become unemployed, your unemployment payment is based on how many years you've worked and how much you got paid in the job that you had before you became unemployed. So if you haven't worked or if you had a very low-paying job, that means that you get no unemployment benefits whatsoever. And we're talking in a post-crisis Spain of people who graduate from university and can't find a job for for 10 years. And because they've never had a job, they're ineligible for any sort of support. In Basque Country, on the other hand, it's the state government, which pays a kind of dole, similar to what we're aware of in Australia. Different climate. Um, The health system is really very good all over Spain, as far as I know, and again, similar to Australia.
1: What about the Catholic Church? You mentioned before about there were priests there and there's a bit of liberation theology. That seems to have gone or decreased in other countries of the world. Is it still
4: there? I'm not actually very sure about the Catholic Church at the moment. They're Catholic-based NGOs. Yeah, Spain is still a Catholic country but it just doesn't seem to be nearly as relevant in the lives of people. Like a lot of people talk about their grandparents going to church, but yeah, not anymore. There was a very, very strong movement. I'm not sure what what it's called when you decide to not in Catholic and you want to get your name removed from the role of the Catholic Church. That was a very kind of important social movement in the 1980s. Now it's not as powerful just because people don't Don't care anymore because the church isn't relevant and the church is now associated with old people and and with immigrants as well and they're kind of running out of nuns so that's an interesting category of immigrant that the catholic church will get visas from nuns from africa and south america because nobody in spain wants to do it anymore
1: do the young people stay there and go to university in the basque country
4: yeah education is pretty high quality and much cheaper than australia so There is, if anything, a brain drain. And there's lots of well-qualified Basque engineers, for example, who are going to work in Austria or in the UK or even coming to work as waiters and fruit pickers in Australia because that can pay better than working as an engineer in Spain. But living Mm. is fairly cheap? Living is fairly cheap. Compared to
1: what they pay here?
4: Yeah, again, it depends regionally. So this summer, one of the biggest political issues has been an anti-tourist campaign in San Sebastian.
1: Tools, not tourism. Is that what they're calling it?
4: Yeah, yeah. And that's because it's become much more viable to rent out your house for three months in summer to tourists and leave it empty the rest of the year than to rent it to somebody who needs to live there. So there are certain cities, such as San Sebastian, which have become too expensive for people who live there.
1: How are they going to make sure that works, to keep the tourists there? Because, I mean, they must bring in an awful lot of money into the economy and... And, of course, it enriches the people who hire out their houses.
4: Yeah, I'm not sure. To me, I think the anti-tourist discourse, I'm not sure if I'm 100% behind it. What they are talking about is introducing a tax on tourism, so a, a surcharge at hotels, which is something that they did at Barcelona. So if you go to Barcelona and stay at a hotel, you have to pay an additional tax, which goes to the local government, which presumably is to offset, I don't know, the in affordability of the city for locals, but I'm not sure that it works.
1: Are they food security in the Basque, or is it stuff coming from France or other countries?
4: I'm not sure. I honestly can't answer that question. There's a lot of uh, dairy production in Basque Country, but in terms of food self-sustainability, I'm not sure.
1: Perhaps I should ask you about uh, political activism. Mm -hmm. What's your
4: role in that? What I'm involved in is something really exciting. I'm in a city called Vitoria-Gasteiz, which is actually the capital of Basque Country. But what it,
1: part of the country is that in?
4: That's about an hour inland from Bilbao. There's a triangle between Bilbao, which is the biggest city, million people; second biggest city, San Sebastian, which is about half a million; and then Gasteiz, which is 250,000. The city was made the capital, declared the capital by the federal government in the 1980s, precisely because it was the least Basque of all the cities. People didn't speak Basque as much, and also historically a very conservative city. So the painting Guernica, the planes that bombed Guernica took off from the airport in gasteiz And in the Spanish Civil War, a considerable part of the, the nationalist, the left-wing army, defected to the fascists when they saw which way things were going. Yeah, that's a part of the story, part of history. Which Do they get really a lot of mind. tourists there? No, not so many tourists there. Okay. No, it's not by the sea. It's not as pretty. It's not well known. More and more, but no tourism. You couldn't no, say No, I just thought because problem.
1: of the, the the um the Guernica thing.
4: Guernica gets a lot of tourists. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah. Guernica, yeah, has a uh, war museum and gets much more yeah more tourists than Guastase, I would say. All
1: right, back to your town.
4: Ah, yeah. So historically, a conservative city, for, full of priests and army officers, they said, and just recently over the last two years there's been a whole series of, of really powerful social movements all of which have mobilized have organized protests of over 10,000 people 10 to 15,000 people to put that in perspective there's 250,000 people who live in Gustase so that's four or five percent of the population so in Melbourne you were talking about A protest of 130,000, 150,000 people, and there haven't been many protests like that in Melbourne, as far as I know. But in Gustavs, recently it's happened, so the anti-fracking movement between 2012 and 2016 organised an incredible campaign which won a complete ban on fracking in the Basque autonomous community.
1: Where were they planning on doing that?
4: A whole lot of different sites, yeah. yeah. I mean, we've seen in fracking in Australia that one well is actually a network of wells is actually hundreds of square kilometres. And it's a small geographical area of our country. And once you start putting holes in the aquifers, it doesn't really matter what the specific location is. It destroys the, the ecosystem. Other issues? Um, so the fracking movement did really well. And another movement... That did very well in 2016. I think it was 2016. There were local municipal elections, and historically, the far right has won the elections in Gasteiz, which is interesting. The Basque parliament is made up with equal representation of Bilbao or the Gipuzkoa, Vizcaya, and Alava, which are the, cap- the three capitals are, are Gasteiz, which is very small, Bilbao, which is a million, and Donosti, which is much bigger. And so, the parliament is very lopsided because One vote in Alava is worth four votes in Bilbao. And the reason why that system was set up is because that way the right-wing party could win in Alava and be represented in Parliament, or else they effectively would lose representation. So at the last federal elections, for example, federally, the winner was the Pepe, the far right. But then if you look at the vote in Basque Country, they came in uh, fifth. So you're talking about a party that wins nationally, but locally, yeah, off the spectrum, except in in Alava, Local council elections, and again, the Pepe in Alava is permitted to be an exception. So the the mayor was openly gay and said that he was anti-fracking, and so the mayor was quite, I don't know, moderate figure, but aligned with this far-right political party just because they needed to win the vote and so had permission to be whoever he needed to be wanted to be re-elected and started running the type of political campaign that we're very familiar with in Australia, all about being anti-immigrants. And immigrants coming and stealing the jobs and getting on welfare and squatting the houses and, yeah, really virulent racist rhetoric. And a coalition came together called Gordegasteis, which was outside of all of the political parties. And they run a pro-immigrant or anti-racism campaign, which was really important in the far right, losing the council elections. That was quite fantastic. And again, managed to mobilise at, at their main protest, 15,000 people, which is pretty incredible.
1: Where are the migrants coming from?
4: From everywhere. Yeah, migration is a relatively new phenomena in Gasteis. Overland? Yeah, because, yeah... Cause, yeah we've all seen on the news about migrants in small boats crossing the Mediterranean but uh, the bus countries on the other side of Spain on the Atlantic Coast so yeah generally migrants arrive in the south of Spain which incidentally is, is much poorer and migrate and most of them don't have the intention of staying in bus country but migrating to England France Germany where there's more established migrant communities and the economy is better so Migration really only started happening with uh, the property boom from two thousand and eight in gas states, and so people are still flipping ab- out about who are, who are, who are these foreigners and where do they come from, and quite diverse as well from Latin America because of the historical ties with Latin America and because you can speak Spanish then from Morocco because it 's the closest country to spain and um, just more recently, even starting to get migration from Pakistan, from China, from places like Nigeria as well, but that's just happened in the last five years.
1: And what happens to these people when they do arrive?
4: Lots of different stories. So it's very complicated because immigration is a, a phenomenon which affects all of Europe, and a lot of the migrants don't want to stay in Spain because it's really difficult to find a job, even if you're Spanish. And so for the most part, the Spanish government... Is happy just with putting pressure on people so that they, they move on. In Basque Country, it's a bit different because there is economic assistance available to migrants, which is a, a political football that people... Where does the money with. come for that? That comes from the Basque, from the state, Basque state government. Yeah. Yeah, which is a good, decent humanitarian thing to do. Yeah. But nevertheless creates a political football where people talk about immigrants being subsidised and the locals not getting money, which It's just as false there as it is here. But nevertheless, that discourse is kind of impossible in other areas of Spain where there's just no welfare for anyone. So
1: what you're saying is in in other parts of Spain, people are forcibly removed?
4: No, people aren't forcibly removed. It's just that you can't find a job. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. just really hard. And also because there's to a much lesser in France... And in Germany, for example, there's very well-established migrant communities with their own networks that doesn't exist in Spain to nearly the same extent. So it's just much more difficult to find somebody who'll take you in, who'll look after you, who'll rent you an apartment. There's lots of that type of of racism. A friend working for SIA, which is an agency of the United Nations, looked for housing for people who asked for and received a refugee status. Because you get lots of people migrating for all sorts of reasons, but a very small number of these people ask for political asylum. And an even smaller number of these people who ask for a political asylum are recognised as refugees by the Spanish government. And those people receive, I think, directly from the United Nations, language lessons, income support. And my friend's job was to ring and find houses for these people to rent. And even though they had a guaranteed income, people wouldn't rent their houses because they were immigrants. Yeah, definitely. A racist. Portions of the bus bus society are very racist.
1: Are there organised groups to support refugees like we do have here in Australia?
4: Yeah, definitely. And also, you have the infrastructure of the Basque nationalist left, which has had a legal political party since 2011, which has a long history of working in solidarity with with Palestine, with Latin America, and is now working to support immigrants as well. Not unproblematically, but it's quite far to the left of the Greens, for example.
1: You Mm -hmm. talked about the Mondrian Cooperative. Mm -hmm. What about cooperatives at the grassroots level?
4: Yeah, yeah, there's definitely lots of them. There's cooperative bars. The radio station, Alaviri, which is kind of like 3CR, supports itself with cooperatively run bar. And the profits of the bar go to support the radio station, which is fantastic. But, yeah, there's dozens. There's cooperative supermarkets selling local organic produce. Housing? Housing is very interesting. What there is at the moment also in Gasteis is an entire squatted suburb called Eracalior, which was a workers' suburb built to house about 1,200 migrant workers, migrant workers being migrant from other parts of Spain, to work in Michelin and Mercedes, built in the 1950s. When the property boom happened, the council decided that it wanted to forcibly expel all of the people from this suburb to build high-rise apartments. They got, as far as expelling everybody, there was a lot of resistance to the expulsion as well because this was built as a dormitory suburb without any services. The community itself built um, churches, built a gym, built a library and a school, yeah, built and paid for by the community itself. So a lot of resistance to the eviction. After five or six years, they managed to get everybody out, to force everybody out, and then the property bubble burst. And so the council owned um, 700 apartments with no plan for them whatsoever. And over the last four years, those have been squatted. And the squatters autonomously has started offering a housing service to all sorts of people, including migrants, including people who are being evicted from their own homes because they can't pay the mortgage, including victims of domestic violence. And so the left is kind of running an autonomous housing service, which is... Ambiguous, complicated, but a really beautiful thing. The council's response is to declare that it will evict people and demolish the houses to build something, to build a road that goes nowhere. It's one of the proposals that they have. And the campaign to support the squatters is actually incredible. That was just two months ago. Another protest of maybe 12,000 people a crowdfunded campaign which got together $100,000 and they're doing a full solar electricity hot water installation to say, yeah, we don't need you, we're going to go autonomously.
1: So if they try to evict them, there's going to be a big battle?
4: Yeah, it'll be interesting, it'll be interesting. It's very, You hope it doesn't get to that. Yeah, and it's very difficult in bus Country because... As I was saying with this bar fight, one of the policemen gets a broken ankle, and this is a fight in a bar, and all of a sudden you get charged with terrorism. And that's something even... So now, ETA declared a a permanent unilateral ceasefire four years ago. That permanent ceasefire and dismantling of the organisation, saying we don't exist, we don't use violence. After that, the government kept charging people with terrorist offences. ETA has since then disarmed hand over all its guns and that doesn't matter either. People still get charged with terrorism despite there being no terrorist organisation and no weapons.
1: Talk a bit about the culture of the Basque, the the language, the art, things like that.
4: The language is Uskira, which is a language isolate, um, which means it's not of the indo-european family it's very very old and very strange
1: and how many of the people can speak that and understand it about
4: 30 percent of the population
1: it's a written language
4: yeah it's a written language and socially there were lots of different basque languages because basque country is often quite mountainous and each mountain spoke its own dialect so yeah everybody's seen maps of indigenous australia with the hundreds of different languages that there are that, that they were here basque country was similar again at the turn of this at the turn of last century synthesized version of all the different Basque dialects was kind of mixed together by a linguist, Savino Arana, quite an interesting character, a very committed Basque nationalist, but also with some fascist tendencies, talking about the Basque people having RH negative blood and he had a kind of racial thing going on as well. But the Batua unified Basque dialect is now taught in the public education system. On the other hand, Basque country, Uskaralia, if you look at that linguistically, Eria is place of, and Euskera is the language, so Ouskalaria is the place of people who speak Basque. And so if you look at the Basque nationalist rhetoric, they don't say this is a, a racial thing, to say this is the country of our place. They say this is a place for anybody who speaks Basque. So it's also the idea of the Basque language is used to, to create an inclusive nationalism.
1: That combined language now being taught in schools?
4: yep, yeah, yeah, it's being taught throughout the public education system. And to be a teacher in Basque Country or to work in the public service, you need to speak Basque. And so the number of speakers is growing every so year. So
1: people have got Spanish and they've got Basque yeah. and they've got
4: English? Yeah, yeah, quite a lot.
1: What about music, art?
4: My favourite part of Basque music is um, a, a really vibrant uh, punk scene in the 1980s. So, yeah, a lot of bands that sound like The Clash, La Polla Records, Reap, definitely worth looking up. A punk protest music, mostly in Spanish. Interesting. still enough. going. Now, yeah, times have kind of moved on. One of the bands worth listening to now, also a lot more bands singing in Oskera. So, Betty Charak, Bad News, Betty Charak is a really great band. And talking about Ere this The Squatted Suburb, Betty Chadak, which is quite a famous band, headlines music festivals nationally, and they offered to play a free concert and A lot of people go to their concert thousands of people, but the whole suburb was running off generators, so they only had enough money uh, enough electricity to choose either lights or sound and so this famous rock band played on a dark stage <laughs> because they didn 't have enough electricity on the right the lights, and it was a really beautiful gesture of solidarity yeah.
1: Charlie Tristan, no. what keeps you there? Is it one thing or is lots of things? You've made a big commitment.
4: Yeah, I've been there for a while. Do you teach? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm working as, a, as an English teacher. That's a, yeah, that's another beautiful thing. As part of the public education system, you can get a place in the official language school where I've been teaching. There's not enough places for everybody who wants them, but you can study English or a number of other languages five hours a week for less than 100 bucks. So it's really encouraged to learn languages, which is not something I've seen so much in Australia. I mean, I guess there's a much denser community fabric, and, and given the population, there's just a lot, there's a lot going on. Yeah, I like it. I find it quite inspiring.
1: And it's also the connections with. I remember talking to you years ago about the Zapatistas. Is that still ongoing? The Connections. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not so yeah. much in Central America, Latin America.
4: There's still a lot of support and a lot of internationalism and a classic summer holiday for a Basque person is to go with Penna, which is a solidarity organisation yeah, on a brigade.
1: And thanks to Tristan to let us know what's going on in the Basque country of Spain. And that's all for me today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned in about two minutes' time for Done by Law. That's it.